Hello, and welcome to the Built to Serve podcast. I'm your host, Mike Favre. I'm here with Corporal in the Marine Corps, Ben Armstrong. Ben, how you doing? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Hey, man. I uh, haven't called that in years. Uh, I'm Ben Armstrong. I'm the Director of Strategic Partnerships and Outreach for Next Stop Veterans. We're a veteran employment um, nonprofit, and we've worked with performance on and off, I think, since 2015. Oh, wow. Okay. So, <clears throat> Tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Bring me all the way up until uh, maybe high school. Yeah, so I'm from Thibodeau, Louisiana, originally. Don't sound like it anymore. Um, Left there in the the early 90s. My dad was an athletic trainer, and so we um, were around athletics my entire life. So he was at Nichols State. Um, He got hired by the NFL Europe. People might not remember that, but Mm. they had an NFL farm league in Europe for a while. So we moved from Thibodeau, Louisiana to London, England. Uh, and that was an interesting uh, cultural change for me. And then uh, lived in London for about two football seasons, uh, got out moved, got out of there, moved to Arkansas, and then ended up in Alabama for high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, and I could be way off base with this, but you said NFL in Europe. Yeah, NFL Europe, yeah. But don't they call soccer football in Europe? They do, but so this was American football is what they called it. Uh, but they, they uh, a lot of guys, uh, John Kidna, James Harrison – um, Kurt Warner, they were all guys who played in the NFL Europe, but it was basically a farm league like they do in baseball. They created it in the nineties. Um, it's still, some of the teams are still there, but it's not, uh, connected with NFL, but it was part of this, um, push that you still see today with the, the games in London to, to push the NFL into Europe and I guess build their brand and get more viewers. Okay. All right, well, that's cool. That's a lesson I've learned today. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's neat. Google it. It's been interesting stuff. Yeah, it's, you, it's very interesting. Kurt yeah. Warner, yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, recently they just put out that movie about Kurt yeah, about Warner, Corey, right? yeah. and him playing, I believe it was for the Rams, right? Yep. So you're saying prior to that, he played in the NFL League in Europe. I'm pretty sure he was one of them. I, jo- I know John Kidd and James Harrison. Um, there was a lot of running backs. Uh, Lawrence Phillips ended up there for a while. Uh, okay. These were, it, was, it was kind of a, um, if you're not ready for prime time, go over here and play. Uh, if you want to get better in the off season, you'd be affiliated with okay. an NFL team. It's more like minor league football. Minor league football, basically. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's cool. Yeah. That's, that's something I'm going to have to definitely dig into. Yeah. So there's a documentary to be made out there. Yeah. Sunny, yeah. But, <laughs> that uh, would be pretty cool. That it would is be pretty interesting. Cool. All right. So you're into high school. Talk talk about your high school career. You know, did you have any aspirations of, of being something at the the end, going to school? What What did you have planned? Yeah, I had no aspirations. I hated school. I felt like I was in prison <laughs> for 12 years. Uh, I was a uh, my grandmother, who was an educator, would tell you I was a dormant student. Um, I just, I feel like I was intellectual enough. I just didn't participate in anything but math and athletics, um, okay. the simple stuff. Um, and uh, played football, but then I think, and we'll get into this later, but I, I made a big decision to um, quit football and start wrestling because it was available at my high school. Uh, and that was a big change for me. And that kind of led me down the road um, to join the military. But um that's really the highlights. I was an athletic trainer while I was in high school, like my father. So I helped with all the injuries and everything or okay. equipment around the football team, bas- basketball, baseball, all those sports. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was kind of a, I was a C and D student and I was just ready to get out. Um, I, I started working at flipping burgers right. and I made money and I was like, it's a lot funner than me at school making no money. Right. So, um, yeah, just not a very illustrious high school career. Yeah. I- and you said you were from Thibodeau, right? Yeah, Thibodeau so originally, yeah. I've got I've got family that lived in Thibodeau and you know, it's either you talk like you're literally living in the bayou yeah. or pe- you know, where people can know that you're definitely not from there. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you speak a completely different language. Yeah. Most of the people who live there actually speak 
you know, Cajun French, right? Yeah. And my papa, my mama, they yeah. they barely even spoke English. So I, I completely understand. But um so were you were you married right out of high school? Did you did you know you wanted to have a family? What No, I I mean I I mean, the high school really persisted of me trying to get out of those walls. That was um, that was your number one. Yeah, focus. and uh, and I uh, the uh, Christmas of my senior year is when I made the declaration to my parents that I was going to join the military. Um, I actually had a partial scholarship to Auburn to go be an athletic trainer through relationships my father had professionally, and um, I, I'd gone and done some camps at Auburn. I'd supported the football team in spring. Uh, I'd gone and worked in water boy and stuff like that, and. Uh, and I just, I just knew I could, like, I was not interested in academics. And I, and I realized it was going to step up from where I was. And so we were watching a movie one Sunday, eating um, dinner. We were all um, kind of sitting around with TV tables. And I, I just look up and I just looked at my dad and I was like, hey, all right. I said out loud in the room, I'm, I think I'm going to join the military. And my dad paused the TV and looked at me and he was like, what, what did you say? And I was like, I think I'm going to join the military. I, I just don't. Um, I was wrestling at the time. I'd lost a bunch of weight. I'd, I'd really kind of pushed an understanding of what I physically could handle. Right. Because I never really had to do it in football. It was a team sport. It wasn't individual. Um, and uh, and he looked at me and he was like, okay, well, if you join anything, you need to join the Marine Corps because your grandfather was a Marine. And I said, okay. And then he put the movie back on and we kind of didn't talk about it. And then um, a few days later, um, he was like, you got to go find the recruiters. And one, one happened to be walking through my school and I just bumped into him and he thought I was lying to him because I was the one student in my – I went to Hoover High School in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was the one individual that went active duty in my entire 700 and some people uh, graduating class, and uh, just not a group of people that served traditionally. Um, and uh, we went and met with recruiters, and it was just kind of off from there. So I was I was in the pool, you know, as you say, when you sign up before you go mm -hmm. out. I was in the pool from like December of 98 to August of um, 99. I didn't okay. go to boot camp until after summer. And so I was... I just decided to join the Marine Corps, and then I my intention to my academics went lesser than because I was like, well, I'm joining the Marine Corps. I don't need any of this. Oh. But they were like, you do have to graduate high school to get the right. Marine Corps. So, uh, but now that's kind of what the end of my high school career looked like. Oh, wow. So during <clears throat> during the uh, – and, and I speak from experience because I thought I wanted to be a Marine yeah, too. Yeah, a lot of people do. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, so the the story of when I whenever I was uh, questioning whether or not – to become a Marine. This was even before I knew I wanted to join the military, but this guy comes walking through the school. He's yeah. dressed blue. The uniform. He looks so yeah. cool. You're like, man, I'd love to wear that. Hot business. Yeah. Well, he's like, all right, so there's one thing that we have to do before we actually start talking to you about joining the Marine Corps. Yeah. He said, well, there's a, a video presentation that you must watch. Yeah. So he puts this video on, right, and it's the Marine Corps, the way it dresses, and then it rolls into boot camp. Yep. There's like 20 students in this one classroom that just get up and, and walk out, yeah. right? I'm one of them. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to subject myself to being screamed at yeah. and, you know, all this, that, and other. So did you have to watch that video too? No, I didn't have to. There wasn't a video, but I, I would tell you screaming at me is probably my love language. Uh, okay. I grew up around sports. I was around a lot of coaches oh, and yeah. athletes, and it, uh, it just doesn't affect me like other people. And I think it's um, it, it's a real testament to my father's career and then me growing up around sports because you just learn that – there's intention behind screaming, and it's not just that they're mad. Uh, they're trying to get something done. And so um, I think at that point I was just hungry for adversity. I wanted more adversity, and I and I realized that the traditional path just wasn't for me. Right. And so why not go? They kept saying it's hard. You're not gonna you're not gonna fail this and other thing. Not my parents, but people were like, man, the Marine Corps is hard. And I was yeah. Like, 
okay, let's go be hard for a little while. That's and right. so that was kind of what it is. Um, again, I was, I was just ready to go. And that was, that seemed like the fastest way to get out of there. And it wasn't because I didn't like where I was at. It was just, I needed more. And I had this epiphany that like, I'm not going to figure it out myself. I need to go give it up to something else. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like the Marine Corps had a plan. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, I joined and, uh, um, you know, quickly was moving. All right. So you're out, you're, you're still in high school when you do boot camp, right? Uh, no, I, 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 I graduated high school, after? graduated high school. Okay. I continued to work. And then, um, uh, that August at the end of summer, when everybody was starting school, um, August 23rd, 2099, I, I went to Paris Island. Okay. All right. So that day you're going to Paris Island. Tell me, did you fly? No, we rode a bus from Birmingham, right. Alabama to what's what's running through your mind on, on this? I mean, are you any regrets? Any, you know, what what's your mentality on this however many hours it was to, to Paris Island? Yeah, so we um I think we went to Montgomery first and then we got a um hotel room and we met up with all the other people and then we drove from there to nonstop to Paris Island. Uh, I think it's it's eleven hours, maybe. I don't know. Um the um uh, I do know we were in a hotel for some time with other guys that were coming from my area mm-hmm. that our, I think our recruiters put us on a buddy program because they got money out of it. We really didn't know each other, but they're like, they're all buddies. They're joining together. Uh, and, um, uh, it, it all, it really all started out with At the time there was a Marine Corps commercial where the gentleman would go through a maze and he had a sword and he killed a dragon. And so jokes in the hotel room were like, when do we get the sword? When are we going to kill the dragon? And it was really just kind of, uh, us and I've always been a little humorous. And so that was really the conversation the one thing I do remember is um, um, I've had I've had migraines um, from overexertion and stuff like that in the past, and I got a migraine on the bus to boot camp. And I remember um, it, the bus driver, it's, it's just us, and I don't really think there was a government employee. It was just a bus driver and just a bunch of guys who were going to boot camp, guys and gals, because Paris Island, they train female Marines as well. Um, and uh, I told him, I was like, hey, I, I need to take some medication or something. He, so we stopped at the gas station. I remember getting some ibuprofen. I took like double what you're supposed to take. Oh, yeah. I, I killed a bunch of water and I actually got to sleep. And then I woke up and the headaches was gone, but we were on Paris Island when I woke up. Oh, and wow. uh, yeah, it was dark. We showed up late. Um, I think it's super early morning, like 2 a.m. or 1 a.m. or something mm-hmm. like that. And then um, and then it's just off. And so, I, I mean, it was it was weird because I, I wasn't focused on my future. I was more focused on like my immediate need that I had a bad headache. Right. Um, and... Uh, and maybe that's God's way of keeping the uh, adversity way. It's like, yeah. hey, deal with your immediate pain. Don't worry about the future. It's going to take care of itself. And so, no, it was just, it's, uh, I vividly remember walking to this very ill-lit gas station and looking for pills. And the woman wasn't selling them, but she had a bottle. And I told her what I was going to do. And she was like, well, you just take the bottle. And I was because you're going to boot right. camp. And uh, I did buy the water. I think I had the last little bit of money on me. And then uh, we were gone. So, wow. Yeah. So... <laughs> I'm wondering if the military does that on purpose, whether it's all branches or what. It's like nine times out of ten, the people that I talk to, whenever they roll up on their fort or their their base or whatever yeah. for training, it's dark. Yeah. You know, you can't see anything. They don't show you where you're going or, or anything. So did – when you get to Paris Island, did they do any kind of processing before they roll you into training? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a massive processing thing. They bring you in. You do – you um. You don't meet your drill instructors. You meet, like, light drill instructors that aren't, like, fully psychopathic. The arm, yep, Army's, yeah. Army's got the same thing. Bring you in, kind of do the amnesty box, make mm-hmm. a phone call. Did you lie to us about anything? Your recruiters have told you not to say anything. You're in a big room, silent. Um, and then you basically start going through haircuts, um, supply, 
simultaneously. I think they keep you up for 48 hours. Okay. Um, and um, shots, medical, and everything like that. Um, I do remember that we were getting Jimmy Dean, like, like tray lunches that were uh-huh. like with a cellophane, and they were all frozen. So we were like eating these frozen sandwiches and it had chips and a drink and all that stuff in it. But I remember like seeing that four or five times throughout this initial process. Like all okay. of our meals were exactly the same. Oh, wow. And uh, in the squat bays we were in or the areas we were in, the AC was just through the roof. And this is August and, you know, Tarasana, so it's hot. Um, so it was outside sweaty, inside freezing. Um, no, and then they finally, um, you get to a place and you, you're just, I think they do that on purpose to make sure everybody sleeps at the same time and they sleep deep. <laughs> They get us to bed. They wake us up kind of soft the next morning, but they get us up. Um, we have these two man. They call receiving drill instructors. They kind of walk us through the process, and then and I think it's four days. Then you're in front of your actual drill instructors because they're giving you the remedial stuff, like how to stand online, how to how to listen, and how to answer, how to talk. We right. have to shift everything to third person. Right, it's a big part of Marine Corps training, or was when I was in. Um, right, and yeah, and it's just it's a blur from there. And then once you get with your regular drill instructors. Um, you don't see it while you're in it, but they kind of phase the training from there. Mm-hmm. And um, looking back on it, you can kind of see the seasons of training change while you're in it. Yeah, I, I noticed the, the army's the same exact way. Yeah, we we had, uh, and gosh, you know, I think it was red phase, white phase, then blue phase was yeah. the army thing, right? Yeah, you yeah. know, it's it's like I think the Marine Corps calls it like Hell Week or something like that, or what? Yeah. You know, it's yeah, your first few weeks in the army, it's uh, I mean, it's just for lack of a better word it's balls to the wall yeah, right it's i mean blur. Yeah, exactly yeah. then it gets a little easier because rifle qual and everything yeah, yeah. else you're learning how to shoot your weapon right. and then the finals is basically d and c you know your final mm-hmm. weeks you're actually learning how to do everything properly to right. a t and right. and then Beautiful. graduation so yeah I, the, the marines and the army are, are very very similar but very very dissimilar in some, yeah. some or both ways. ground forces right so a big part of what the army does is ground a big part of what we do is ground exactly uh but um it's just the culture, right? The Marine Corps is a, is a cult, for lack of better terms. Uh, it's a brotherhood, army, for yeah, sure. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the Army doesn't have the extent of our esprit de corps or our, our history, but it's uh, <clears throat> small but fierce. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, and, and that's one of the biggest reasons why the Marine Corps has such a strong following and a, and a strong respect, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. they, they demand it. The, the training is hard. Yeah, demand, we do demand yeah. a lot of the Marine Corps. <laughs> I tell I, some of the people that— uh and. I don't want to make this about me, but I do want to tell a, a story, and I might have even mentioned it on the podcast before. But yeah. uh, when I was in Iraq, um, we we had taken a base over from the 4th ID, mm-hmm. and uh, the Marine Corps were the guys that were, uh, guys and gals, that were the ones that were pulling guard duty on all these Around. what we called Saddam Towers. Right. And I got this one Marine, he's an E-5, and he and I are in this one tower, and this is my first time on guard duty right. ever in the war zone. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, I, I hope he knows what he's doing and where he's looking because I'm lost as I could possibly be. Yeah. And I'm, I'm talking to this, this NCO in the Marine Corps and he's just stone cold. I mean, he is like as robot as RoboCop, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, he is just focused 100%. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm profiling the military or the Marine Corps at this point. I'm yeah. like, all Marines are robots. Yeah. You know, they're just so focused on this one thing. They don't have time to talk or right. tell you what you need to do. You need to figure it out. You know, we got off of guard duty, and this is no joke. We get down off the guard tower. He puts his arm around my back, and he's like, don't worry, Sergeant. We got it, man. Yeah, yeah. We got it. And I'm like, you could have told me that nine <laughs> hours ago. 
I would, you know, yeah. lack of crap in my pants. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I was scared he was to testing death. you right? too, yeah, yeah. profiling you. Yeah. So, but no, I mean, we wound up communicating, and and they passed it off to us very, very right. well. But I found a whole new level of respect for the yeah. Marine Corps. So I tip my hat to you. I think it's a, a great. Uh, it's, it's a it takes a great man or woman to you know find that spot in their life where they're like I'm going to join the Marine Corps it, right. regardless if your parents did or your grandparents mm-hmm. or whatever right or if your dad tells you if you're going to join one you need to join the Marine Corps it takes you the individual to make the decision yeah, to make and, it, it, and yeah. that to me I, I cowered it out I mean no know. I don't think it's a coward thing I think it's just we, we all have our, our pathways right and we all need certain things right and I think. Um, it's just what I needed at the time. That's right. And I, I think I have the um, the mentality for it. I'm I got still, you. I, but I'm not as I'm not as lean. I'm not as mean as I used to be. But I guess I'm still a marine. So hey, absolutely. Yeah. So what was your what was your MOS? Yeah. So I was an aviation electrician on Harriers. I was a smart marine. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> a five year enlistment because of that because of so much more training than your traditional marine gets. It's a four year enlistment, and so uh, it's a very small part of the Marine Corps, the Harrier community. Right. It's only in really two places in the Marine Corps, North Carolina, and. Um, Arizona, uh, and they're actually in the in the midst of being phased out of the Marine Corps. It's the, the Harrier. Hub, is? Yeah, the Harrier. So explain explain a little bit of what the for the people who are watching yeah. or listening. What what is a Harrier? Yeah. So if you've seen True Lies, uh, it's the um, it's the the jet that's used in that. It's a jet that it's called V stall, but it's it can hover to take off and hover to land. Uh, you 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 use that um, capacity, the landing um, um, mainly the takeoff. It doesn't hover to take off because that's a you have to have low fuel in it. And right. Stuff like you can't have ordnance on it. But uh, it's really, you know, at the time when I was in the Marine Corps, they called it the street fighter because it could, uh, you could put it on a small deck boat. Um, it was naval, a naval mm-hmm. ship. It could get out, get close to um, countries. It could fly out of there in flight refueled and come back and land okay. on a very limited sized um, um, aircraft, not carrier, but larger ship. Um, I got you. And, um, my time in the Marine Corps saw the evolution of the Harrier because they instituted a, a targeting pod that had not it, um, existed on that airframe before. It's called the Lightning Pod. Okay. It was a resource and a, a technology the Air Force had, but it basically allowed the Harrier itself to laze its own targets. It, it put more advanced forward-looking uh, infrared on it. Okay. And it uh, it really changed the game. Um, during the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, my understanding is it became a, a really good resource to find uh, IEDs and stuff because of the strength of the flare. It's a small, it's a, it has a lot of extra avionics, so it's a slower aircraft, not a dogfighter, it's a bombing aircraft. Okay. And, um, and so it, it, it had uh, some really good capacities that were leveraged during Iraq and Afghanistan because it was attached to the Muse. So the Muse, what we deploy on the Marine Corps is a Marine Expeditionary Unit, yep. where you shove a bunch of Navy and Marine Corps resources together, and you, it's basically America's 911 service around the world. Right. And, um, and uh, yeah, so it's it's a real versatile aircraft. Uh, it's probably the most versatile jet because it doesn't need a lot. It can be deployed with helicopters and still do jet things. Right. And so uh, yeah, it's uh it's you Google it. It's 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 an interesting aircraft. It can do some things that other uh, aircraft can't do. But uh yeah, that was the community I was in, and I was an electrician on it. So I worked if it had wires or had lights on it, then that was our job. Okay. Uh, so basically troubleshooting, which is it's broke, go fix it. Oh wow. Yeah. So. Th- the new F thirty five is replacing the Harrier. Yes. Okay. I was. That's where I was going yeah. with it because the avionics are somewhat similar. Right. They, I, mean, I mean, they are. I mean, it'll all be new age stuff. Um, oh, of course. The, the maintenance mean, yeah. world has changed. Whereas, um, you could argue that some of the equipment we had was like bus like equipment. This will be sports car equipment. Right. But uh, right. they evolved the Harrier a lot. Um, 
when I was in and since. But um, no, the the F thirty five will have it'll be a similar airframe, but it'll have different abilities based on what it what services with. So the the F thirty five that the Marine Corps is receiving does the V stall hover landing and takeoff. Okay. Uh, the other ones don't, but they, I think that was the the point was they wanted to continue to have that capacity. Okay. But they realized the airframe was was getting old. Um, the Harry's been around for a long time. Oh right. Yeah. 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 I remember being a kid. Yeah. And watching this thing, and I, I was just like, how in the world can yeah. an airplane take off like a helicopter? It's interesting without a problem. Yeah. And I, I was not a I'm not an engineer or anything, but it, even working on the aircraft, you still question like I don't understand how this works at all. Right. But it's exactly. it's all air, and it's uh they just exhaust and um it's it's interesting. Oh yeah, sure. I. I get it. I watch a lot of Marvel and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? And all these, all these, John knows what more about what I'm talking about. The man behind the camera, for those of you who are not familiar with the podcast, but, you know, these aircraft like in Marvel where these props are out yeah. on the wings and these craft are just taking off, yeah. you know? And I think all that's coming from like these, uh, the drones. Drones. drones you know? and, yeah. and now the military's even, mm-hmm. you know, using drones. And I can remember some of the first ones that came out, you know, these little small ones mm-hmm. that you couldn't get to balance or whatever, uh, and they would just fly all over break. the place. Yeah. To see what technology has done over the past, yeah. t- you know, 10 years is just incredible. Right? No, it is. And it's uh, the aviation world is, is no stranger to advancement and innovation. And it's, oh, yeah. it, was, it, was an, it was a great community to be a part of for a while. Ah, that's cool, man. I, I, like I said, I, I think being in the, well, being in the Army or the Marine Corps, yeah. you know, and even the Navy, I, between Air Force and Navy, I feel like the Army and the Marine Corps just get all the leftovers. You know, uh-huh. they just, they, you know, we're just going to scrape the bottom of the barrel. We're right. going to let the nerds take care of everything else, you right. know. But I, not saying they're nerds, but. Uh, they're nerds. Yeah. But, uh, okay, no, I'm, I'm glad I've got somebody no, on the I side. No, I think it's, it's uh, you know, the Marine Corps is a department of the Navy, so it's really not its own service. Right. But I think uh, the idea is the Marine Corps can handle what you give it. That's it. Uh, it's also... You know, somebody told me one time is like the Marine Corps is so good at this stuff because we really don't have stuff; we have people, yeah. <laughs> right? And so we and we're leading and making people more lethal and making them better leaders. And then the the uh, the gear or equipment we get is just to advance our people, right? Which is the Marine. That's it. Um, whereas you know the mission of the Air Force, of the Navy, they you know the, they have big audacious missions with a lot of technology. Um, it's not completely people focused. Yeah, it's, it's a de- t- delivery focused, right? Or mission focused. So it's a uh, no, I, I, the more I've, you know, I've worked in veteran services since 2011, and the more that I um, I do this, the more I get appreciation for the different missions of the different mm. services, because it's it's a combined arms, you know, um, effort that right. uh, really brings everything together. Okay. All right, so let's kind of pull it back together. We got off in the weeds there. That's awesome conversation. I Like I said, before we started the podcast, I yeah. mean, we could talk about this stuff for days. Yeah, it's but, exciting. So... You're you're done with boot camp, uh, so assuming you went active duty Marine Corps, right? Yep. So where was your duty station? Tell me a little bit about your career and all the way up to your ETS of, of the Marine Corps. Yeah. So um, um, boot camp Paris Island. Um, I joined. Uh, I joined at an odd time in the Marine Corps at the end of every summer. A lot of people join at one time, so to get you to training is somewhat difficult. Right. So um, I I go uh, through boot camp, and then I immediately go home for Thanksgiving. Then I go to Marine Combat Training, which is a for guys like me who weren't grunts, they, right. they send you out in the woods for a while and abuse you. Um, so did that. Um, following that, I went to OJT uh, in Norfolk. Uh, they had to put me somewhere while we were waiting to class up in my um, my profession. 
um, did OJT in Norfolk for a little bit, basically taking the pressure off of getting talent to the schoolhouse in Pensacola. Sure. I was in Pensacola for, I think, six to eight months, heavy math training, aviation training. Uh, and then they sent us to uh, North Carolina, Cherry Point, North Carolina, which is my, my second school and then my actual base. Um, so they train all the Harrier guys at, um, at Cherry Point. Um, and then I was attached to VMA 231, um, which is the, I think it's the first squadron in the history of the Marine Corps, first and oldest, uh, the Ace of Spades, and uh, was there for, um, you know, we, 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 in the Air Wing, we have kind of a transient lifestyle because we're going to different places to train. So we went to Florida, North, or um, uh, Las Vegas, Yuma, Arizona, mm-hmm. popped around. Um, and, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the things I can remember are um, we were at a thing called Combined, or I'm sorry, CACS, which is Combined Arms Exercise. It's at 29 Palms okay. out in California. Uh, we had deployed to do that. And um, while we were there, um, kind of the middle, this is about 2001. This is 2001. So it's kind of the pivot point in my, my service. Um, we're out in the desert. Um, I'm working night crew on the aircraft, which mainly does maintenance at night so they can fly during the day. Sure. Um, it's historically all maintenance in the military has done two shifts or three shifts. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, we're out at, in the middle of the desert, um, sleeping during the day in case bands, and uh, everybody leaves. And we have to, you have to chase aircraft in the military. Like they could break going across the country. So right. they're flying from California to North Carolina. And so we are the chase crew. We're like the last maintenance guys set around so we can catch them if they, they break down. Uh, conveniently, they'll break down in places like Las Vegas, Austin, Texas, like real nice spots. Okay. Uh, and, uh, but uh, then September 11th happens. Oh. And um, we're out in the middle of the desert, no TVs, no nothing. Our Sergeant Major wakes us up and is like, we've been attacked. I, I don't at the time even know what the twin towers looks like i'm from the southeast i've never been in new york right um and uh and then quickly after that we um we start training to deploy we were already going to deploy on the next mu then that mu changed because of the um and we the hair community was managing um afghanistan airspace with the brits we would we would um split it south and north um so the harriers have been in afghanistan forever we would okay. just deploy out there all the time and just manage the airspace and so uh, September 11th happens. Uh, the next spring, we're gone on the 2-4 Mew, the 24th Mew. And uh, and we go through the med, end up doing some support of Afghanistan. Really don't spend a lot of time there because they didn't need six Harriers. Uh, <laughs> they they, had, they were bombing it from America at the time, uh, from Freeport, actually. Um, and then uh, went and sat in the Gulf for about seven and a half months, ballpark. And then did the invasion of Iraq. Um uh, we were over there for 31 days in the invasion of Iraq, and then they sent us home. We had been we'd been over there. We were supposed to be there six months, and I think we in theater we spent about 11 months. Oh yeah. So we were. We, I think we became real pricey for the Department of Defense to keep us imagine. in that area, uh, and came back and just. Um, I it, it's inter- it, I've spoke to people about this because it was an interesting time in the Marine Corps as we were standing up the the initial part of the war. Um, all the equipment that was serviceable went overseas. Okay. And everything that was broken or needed, like, heavy maintenance, they they basically found a squadron or a unit to just shove all the broken toys to. And they were like, they're going to fix it. And it's just, it, it's a logistic reality. Like, we've got, and so, um, as I remember, my command received all these broken aircraft. And so, I went from being in a high-tempo, deployed status to coming back and just being in this ruthless maintenance status. And um, and then there was talk of more deployments coming quickly and it just, I was at a time in my life where 
I'd been over there for so long and then I got back and the maintenance was just so brutal that it was just hard to like see past, like it's going to get good again. Right. And so, um, and so I, I made the decision, um, at the time to, uh, to look into college. I was just like, I'm going to try to get off the aircraft for a while and go figure something out. Um, I don't want to go back overseas after being there so long in this short period of time. Right. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a family or anything. I mean, I had my family. I didn't have kids and a wife or anything, right. but it was just like, I, you know, I need a break. And, um, and the maintenance just kept piling up. And so it was just a, it was, like I said, it was a rough time in the Marine Corps to kind of get the war machine going. And uh, I, I popped out. I was like, well, and so my enlistment ended, uh, I was accepted into college and I was gone. And so okay. that's kind of, uh, no hard feelings, no nothing like that. It was just at a time in my life when I was like, I, there's more to working 12 hour nights and losing weekends all the time. Um, and, uh, yeah. And ended up in Texas for school. Believe it or not, I'm telling you, I think a large quantity of those who have ETS or in time service out of the military, especially from probably 2002 to like, I can speak to like 2000, I'd say 12 or 13 when you're deployed every other year. Yeah. You don't see the light at the end of the day. No, you just, it's going to happen again. You, yeah, yeah. You're like, you know, this is my life for the yeah. next however many years, you know, and it, it's kind of, it's kind of funny because you, you literally thinking, okay, yeah, I love it. I, I want to do it again. Right. Okay, great. You are going to have you're the opportunity, do it again. Yes. right? Or you're like, you know, I can't do this again. Well, and, it's not, I don't think it's can. It's just like you're, like you said, you can't see beyond it. Right. And you're like, oh God. And then you think back about the, uh, and it's not. In most cases, the violence of deployment, it's just a monotony that you're just like, geez. And so, no, I think it's just, you know, the, the other thing about the Marine Corps is that 75% of the people that serve in the Marine Corps get after get out after one enlistment. Right. So the Marine Corps doesn't keep people in it. Right. Um, and uh, and I think looking back on if you're if you're pushing numbers at, a, at the Pentagon level and you need aircraft fixed, you can burn through a Ben Armstrong and, and I get to keep the title and I get free college and they get planes in the air and we're, you know, shake hands, we're done. Yeah, and so I think it's um, it's just the needs of the Marine Corps over the needs of the individual. I got you. I, that's awesome. Yeah. So you're out of the Marine Corps, and you're you're you've decided or you've made the decision to to go to college at this point. Yeah. So where did you go? Uh, what what degree did you pursue? Talk, talk yeah. So um, I, I served with a lot of guys from Texas when I was in, and mm-hmm. I, I kind of got drawn to Texas. Um, spoke to my parents about it. Back to my father. Uh, he was at Nickel State for years, and they used to play a team in Texas called Southwest Texas. Okay, it's south of Austin, called San Marcos, uh, and there's a river that runs through campus, and it's a it, it's a beautiful part of Texas, and it's a it's a nice little um, spot. And I kind of remembered it from my youth, and I was like, "What is the name of that school?" And uh, just so happened, my mother works in academics, and she knew somebody who worked at the university. And in order to get out of the Marine Corps at the time, I had to get a little letter of acceptance. I had to right. prove that I was accepted to a school and. So we went on a visit. Um, a lot of a, the culture that I had recognized in my peers and kind of the music and stuff that I'd learned when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan with these guys um, was all very evident. And it seemed like a great opportunity in that central Texas area at the time. And so I, I just went out there and, um, uh, you know, started up. Me- I think I was I was still. So when you get out, you can go on terminal leave. Right. Yep. You can get uh, they basically allow you to take all your leave at once to get out. And uh, I started school while I was still getting paid as a Marine. So the first month I was in school in August of um, 2004, I was still, I was a Marine until uh, I started like on August 2, 3, and I was a Marine until the end of that month. Okay. And so, I, I mean, I didn't, 
I got out, moved there, found a, didn't find a job, like got my feet under me for like a few weeks, and then sure. I was in school. Sure. Um, which I don't know if that was the, the right thing to do, but it was what I did at the time. And I just pushed through school as fast as I could. Um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, the one thing I will say to kind of put a, because you're going to ask me a little bit about my transition into what I do now and everything. Um, That's coming. <laughs> yeah. I, I was an aviation electrician on Harriers that had been to war that had advanced electronic experience. And I got out and all I could figure out how to do was go to college. Okay. I couldn't figure out how to transition that experience into a career. And I think that'll be an interesting conversation to have when we talk about the job I do now. But, but college was the easiest access point for me. And at the time, it just made sense. I want to be in Texas. This is, I've got money in my bank account and I know this will bring income monthly because it has a stipend with the GI Bill. Um, so I'm going to go to college. Um, didn't see any other opportunities to leverage my experience in the Marine Corps to go find a job at the time. Uh, th- there was no infrastructure there to show me my opportunities. Um, and, uh, and and really, I think I was looking to, to kind of figure out what I'd in- been involved in mm-hmm. for the last five years. And so I got an undergraduate degree in philosophy and political science. Okay. And uh, um, I eventually started working at a gym as a maintenance guy because okay. uh, I was a maintenance guy on aircraft. Right, I right, fix yeah, the aircraft, yeah. fix the treadmill. And uh, the guy who owned the gym was actually a veteran. And I think our first conversation was uh, I found like a screwdriver or something sitting around the gym. And I was like, you have a, you have a bad tool control problem. And he was like, were you in the military? And he's like, yeah. He's like, well, I, my maintenance guy needs some help. So why don't you come work for me? I'll give you a free membership. And then I started working for him and worked there um, entire time I was school. And it was, it was a great opportunity because I didn't really have hours. Wow. Right? I could do class and I can go in and work when I needed to. Um, and, and it kept me in shape. So um, there you go. Yeah, that was kind of my high school career. Or my college career, I'm sorry. So tell me a little bit about a moment in your life that helped identify who, who you are today. Yeah, it's, I, I, it's, it's not a question I've really thought about until you sent me this. Uh, I, don't, I don't really look back at stuff like that. I kind of look forward. Uh, but, uh, no, it's an interesting question. I mean, I could talk about, you know, our, our experience in boot camp and going to war and sure. getting out and deciding to get certain education and all. But I, I try to figure out what was the foundation of all this stuff. And so um, – I mentioned this earlier when I when I started high school in Alabama. I, I stopped playing football and I started wrestling. Okay. And I I look back at that to be like the first decision I made for myself. Uh, I played football because my dad worked around football and it was what we did in our family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I was a bigger guy and I always stayed big and I and I was it's a team sport so it wasn't individually focused. And and going to wrestling meant that I lost the team and it was on me. Right. Um. Uh. If I failed, I failed on my own. Sure. Um. Would I feel like a man or would I, would I throw a fit, right? And I look back at making that decision changed me physically and then allowed me to believe that I could participate in something like boot camp okay. and join the Marine Corps. And so when I when I started looking at getting recruited or started talking to recruiters about military service, I had a real confidence about my physical ability because of doing that. And I think the the individual things that I learned about myself because I went to wrestling and did an individual sport over a team sport, I was able to use those things as I've gone forward in life. And so it, it was it maybe three years of my life that I wrestled, but it's it the decision to do it and then the adversity that it created in my life led me to these other decisions and knowing that I could handle these other decisions. Oh, wow. You know, and that's, that's, that's a great point. And I've, I've definitely said it prior to this moment on, on this podcast many times. Life is about a lot of decisions. Yeah. I mean, it, where you're going is based on the decision that you made 15 years ago, right? Or five minutes ago. Every decision that you make impacts the future, you know? And, I, and I, Lord knows I've told my kids that a hundred million times, right? I tell my wife that. I tell myself that, right. you know, it's all about making the right 
decision. You know, granted, nobody makes all the right decisions, but doing the best that you can to actually think about those important ones can definitely impact a, a brighter future or a darker future. Yeah. So with that being said, um, one person in your life that you consider a mentor, tell, tell me a little bit about that person and why you chose that person. Yeah. So another thing I, I don't think about often, I do, I do challenge myself because mm-hmm. there's a lot of conversations in the professional world about having a mentor, somebody to go to. And, and I don't, I have that a little bit in my leadership my organization, but I haven't ever like hammered out a professional mentor that I can go and talk to about right. things. Um, uh, or at least I say that I haven't. Um, and so I thought about the question and I was like, um, but what, what, where do I get mentorship? So one obviously is my father. It's a foundational, my fa- foundational mentor through his actions and his, his um, things he said. I, I remember those today, um, you know, to kind of go back to, you know, some decisions in my life and stuff is like my father chose to do hard things. And so I'm not scared to choose to do hard things because moving somewhere, not knowing anybody and stuff like that is because the example that he set. Um, it's always a good stalwart one. But I also challenge myself with the question to say, like, okay, so beyond him, who else? Right. And um, um, I, I'd also like to say my father was in athletics my entire life. So I was around coaches and athletes. Mm-hmm that would persist and overcome things. Sure. And then I served in the military. And so I've been around other individuals from other walks of life that have persisted and been resilient. And I work with veterans. And so um, to give myself an out and to say where I get mentorship, I, I think I get it from the individuals I interact with as well. I see their examples. I learn from what they do. I see people persevere in situations when it seems almost like you couldn't. I've seen people start businesses and grow their businesses and so I'm, I'm, I think we're all lucky to be surrounded by potential mentors if we're just paying attention. Mm. And so um, I appreciate you asking me this question because it's opened me up to be more intentional about it and to say, yes, my father and the things that I do are very based on things I learned from him. But as I go through life, it might not be that I have to go identify a person that's an older man that was successful in business to be my right. mentor. I can look everywhere and find mentorship. Um, um, and I think the last thing I'll say is that one thing I learned in the military was to ask mm-hmm. is if you don't know it, you don't know it. And you're not in trouble if you don't know it because nobody ever told it to you. Right. And so I think a lot in my professional career in my life, I try to just ask people that are either at the place that I want to be or they're doing something that I'm interested in doing or I don't know how to do. And I just ask. And often people are, would love to talk about themselves like I've done for a long time because you've asked me. Right, exactly. But, uh, but asking people is, is an easy way to get information and to get mentorship. And so... Um, one thing I would tell veterans and and those that are maybe looking for opportunities to excel or transition in their lives from one thing to another, it's like, you know, understand people have jobs and they have schedules, but it doesn't hurt to ask. And then ask that person to give you some time to give you that information. Sure. And so I think in thinking about mentorship, those are the two things that came to mind. Wow. Well, that's, that's awesome. I, I, I know nine out of 10 people who come on here, actually utilize their, their father or their mother as, as a yeah. mentor, you know, or some kind of relative. That's the first that we've actually heard someone say, you know, everybody that you talk to is typically, you know, has the potential to be yeah. a mentor. And that kind of made me, you know, cock my head to the side and made me think about it for a second. That's that's a really, really great point, yeah. you know, in making sure that we conduct ourselves in such a manner to where we could potentially be a mentor for others. That That's, that's really great stuff. So I, I appreciate that. 
No, I mean, it's, it's just like watching people touch the stove. If they get their hand burned, don't touch the stove. <laughs> That's mentorship. <laughs> Absolutely. So, no, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that. And like I said, I challenge myself with it. And I wanted to find, uh, I'll find and I, because I know I hear things and I mm-hmm. see things and I change my activities. I was like, well, who's giving me that mentorship? Well, the people around me. Wow. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Your transition seems really, really easy. I mean, was it as easy as you make it sound? I don't think so. I think I also got out there in a stop loss, and I didn't want to really go into that because it's it's kind of a very unique thing. But right. when, I, when I got out of the military, the military was not allowing people to get out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then then I and so I in theory, what I did was I was I always you know not a great student, but I'm 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 I'm, I'm just I'm tricky. So uh, I went and looked into what what could get me out during that thing, and the college thing was there. Okay. And so that's what I leveraged to get out because I was just ready to go. And um, and I would tell you that, it, uh, you know, on paper, it was – I was doing something. I was immediately doing something. You know, I was I was out of the Marine Corps. I was in class. Right, exactly. So, so I had a task and purpose. There you go. However, when you think about um, – you know, just to sprinkle this in. I, I didn't process or get health care until five years later. I had free VA health care. I didn't participate in it. I didn't do my disability claim until until I was out of graduate school. Oh so until God. September or till 10 or 11, right? So it's just I didn't participate in the things that people are participating in as they exit now right. as part of the infrastructure. Um, I also, you know, I it, it, it's not um, – not PTSD or or suicidal ideation or traumatic brain injury. I had anger problems. Um, I think it's because you switch from one culture to the other. So quick. Right. Um, I'm, I'm a big proponent of group therapy sessions. There was a lot of um, stuff going on at a community level for OIF and OEF veterans, okay. post-911 veterans at the time in the communities. Uh, Texas was one of the number one states for people to return to getting out of the military. And so I participated in stuff like that. Um, it wasn't what was me. It was just... Um, um, like these kids, you know, the things that we, we say as a group of veterans is like, man, these kids don't care. They're, they're not participating in school at the level they should be. And I had to realize how to compartmentalize my experience. And, I mean, they're just out of high school. Like, right. What, what yeah, do I sure. expect of them? And, uh, and so I had some really good engagement in the first six months that I got, first two semesters, first six months with some counseling and okay. and just meeting other veterans and um, and – and figuring out my anger and then kind of trying to be proactive with my passion or my zeal okay. as opposed to like taking it out on other people because they weren't participating or they were against the war yeah. and stuff like that, which is, it's just not a tree to bark up. And um, right. so I, I mean, it was being, and then professionally there's some difficulties dealing with, I had that hard experience as an electrician on a- aircraft and I'm working on treadmills. And so every once in a while you can be like, what, what am I doing with my life? Oh, right. Yeah. But I think I was able to compartmentalize and say, okay, you're getting your education, mm-hmm. which will lead to something. Mm-hmm. You're making decent money. You're in a fun place. You got activities to do. Um, and I think, and it's something we tell people now, sometimes you have to take a step sideways to take a step up. That's right. Right. And so um, I think I had to refine myself and, and learn more to, to get where I needed to go. But um, yeah, what I mean, it's not, there was no ghost or, you know, any horrible things. But it wasn't all, um, you know. It was it was it was taxing, right? I, I can definitely see where there would be some di- difficult times in, yeah. in there, and especially you know when you're questioning yourself, like you said, yeah. you know, what am I doing? What what am I gonna do? Where right. am I gonna go? Yeah. You know, and I, even now today, and I, and I'm speaking for the the veteran community, yeah, you know, all 
however many millions of us. So there's times in our lives, even after we ETS out and we're established, right? We're just like, you know, what, what am I doing? You right. know, what am, what am I going to do? And I'm wondering if it all stems back to that, you know, when we were in the military, we had an end goal. We knew where we were going constantly. We were being told the communication was on mm-hmm. point. Now that we're out and it's years later. So I've been out since 2008 or whatever. And I still go through, the, through these moments. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, you know, I need to make sure that I'm prioritizing my week, my, yeah. my days, my minutes, my seconds, because if I don't, it's almost like I have a, an anxiety attack, right. you know, because I don't know what's next. And there's a large community, a population out there that are probably going through the same thing. In your experience, and I know I know you're not a doctor by any yeah. means, but what has helped you in those times of of confusion or need? No, I think it's I think it's it's government training produced anxiety, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But I think uh, it's a really good question. I, you know, for me, I compartmentalize the heck out of everything, right? Understand what it is, um, whether it's emotional or like. Um, you got to get out of town because the hurricane coming. Right. Like compartmentalize it and just do the mission. I think that's something, as long as you can always go back to your foundational things you learned in your service, it's boot camp level stuff, right? Like you can get through everything because you understand what resiliency is and you understand how to deliver, right? You understand mm-hmm. how to like set tasks, do those tasks to get to your goal. And I think, I mean, that's, it's, it sounds so simple, but with all the complexities of self-help and everything that's out there, I think if you could just write a list, accomplish the list, see a tangible return of your efforts, then you'll be happy. And I think uh, the other thing is, is that you've got to create some kind of mission for yourself. Absolutely. I think that's the one thing you alluded to it, but we're a joint group of people that have the same mission. And that uh, when you're in the military and losing that, we don't talk overtly about that often. Right. But it's um, and that's I think that's why Marines have such hard times sometimes transitioning because we're all such aggressive. Sure. At, you know, we're locking each other on all the time while in service. <laughs> yeah. And then and then you get out and you're trying to lock on civilians and they're like, dude, you're a jerk. Right. Like, stop. Uh, but yeah. um, but no, I think it's it's um, it's you know, there, there's so many great the great lines out there like discipline equals freedom. Um, you know, uh, and I think that's what you have to do. You have to rely on the foundational basic building blocks of your military career okay. and going out. The other thing is, is it the mission piece, mm-hmm. get involved in your community, find a, a service organization to get involved in, you know, find another mission that's not in your job. It's a, if it's adopted children, if it's homeless, if it's something like that, um, you know, find that in the, what I've done either on purpose or by accident. And I've kind of combined my professional, my role that I'm in now with my passion. Okay. And I, I was thinking about the, when you sent these questions, and I've never really thought about that, but it's they're kind of one and the same. Mm-hmm. And so it's been helpful for me because I still have a mission um, that, doesn't, that hadn't really changed, and um, I'm still helping people, and, and, and I'm getting paid to do it. So, there you go. Yeah. That, always, it, it, that incentive it helps, always helps. helps. Right, yeah. right. All right, so you're, you're, you're done with college, okay, and then you're pursuing a career. What? And what stage through, you know, graduation, and, and then I don't know, tell me if it walked me through whether it was yeah. days, weeks, months, years that brought you to Next Stop. Yeah, so it, it took a few years. I, I think I got out of college, and I um, I was offered the opportunity to start a small business. Okay. Um, um, we had some initial conversations with the, the gentleman who ran the, the, the gym I'd worked at, mm-hmm. and he saw that I could do the same thing bigger. 
like regionally. He's like, you know, you could get certified in equipment repair. You could, and he goes, I'll help you stand it up and I'll let you have this business. This will be your business. And I just was like, I don't want to be an equipment repair guy. Like I, I didn't see the evolution from doing that to maybe owning a business. You know, I, got you. I, I just didn't have it in me at the time. Um, and um, I, my parents lived in Alabama and I'd been away from my parents for basically 11 years. Uh, I'd seen them at holidays and stuff like that, but I hadn't lived around them. Sure. And um, so I just, I was just like, ah, you know, I don't want to keep working at the gym. I don't want to go do this business thing. Um, it just, I could have done it. It just didn't tickle my fancy at the time. Um, and so I, I, I talked to my parents and I was like, what if I came back to Alabama and just was around? And, um, and, and I, I spoke to somebody and they're like, well, you could look into grad school. And particularly I was interested in public and nonprofit leadership stuff, like mission related work uh, that I didn't see a lot of professionalism in. So like government leadership and stuff like that. Sure. And so I was like, well, I've got the passion because I serve the country and sure. then I also have some education. But what if I went and got like the, the MBA version for government? Okay. What if I did that? And so um, found out I had a little bit more GI Bill left, uh, you know, so I was able to get grad school for free. And so I moved back in uh, to Birmingham with near my parents and okay. um, and took on basically a handyman job and kept doing maintenance related stuff. So leveraging my military experience, just not to the wet level I thought I could. And then um, and uh, got my graduate degree in political science, or I'm sorry, public administration, master's okay. in public administration. Um, while I was there, um, got connected with a, a colleague of my father's um, that was doing a summer youth employment program, so a okay. workforce program. Yep. Needed some help with that. I was able to engage with that, really kind of started building out some budgeting and administrating skills um, with government funding. So it was right in line with what I was going to school for. Um, that was a great program. It was during the um, the recession um, uh, when Obama took office, and um, we were first year three hundred people, uh, sixteen to twenty one. We helped them find work. We paid their salaries, and then they were working with companies to kind of like it was like a paid internship, basically. Okay, okay. But the inter the, the people were like, we need bodies, but we don't have the money to pay for them, and so we facilitated that. Right. And uh, a lot of you know bringing kids in that are sixteen that didn't have any kind of work experience. And getting them to careers, which was sure. kind of the beginning that gets me to next. That's when I first get that workforce workforce bite. Uh, and then the second year, uh, these were kind of basically summer programs, so we kind of go dormant during the fall. Um, we put seven hundred people to work, and so it was like a, it was a great um, validator of the education I was going through, and it really lined up where I was doing projects in school that were basically, or for my graduate degree, they were basically the work I was doing every day. So it was, right. you know, I got very lucky that that lined up, and then. Um, uh, graduated spring of of um, um, eleven, and was was looking to get back to Texas. I, you know, I'd met a woman. Um, I was interested in uh, like she'd lived in Birmingham her whole life, and I was like, you got to go experience other things. And uh, I started looking in Texas. Was talking to a few people, and then out of nowhere, my mother, uh, who was in education, she worked at a university for my entire life or universities. Right. Uh, she was like, you should look in higher education, see if there's any roles that would, would make sense for you there. Uh, University of Texas at Austin, look, they're hiring a director or they're hiring a veteran program coordinator. Okay. And uh, I was like, well, that's me. Hmm. Like, I've been through two degrees. I've, I, I've dealt, I've walked through the, the different doors a veteran has to walk through in education. Uh, and they were standing up a program and I applied and um, quickly got an interview, uh, went, Went into uh, Austin to interview, um, eight-hour interview, different groups of people. Higher education is real bad about uh, 
extensive interviewing of people. Yeah. Uh, I went through it, felt real good about it, um, and quickly got hired. And at the end of September 11th, or I'm sorry, October of 2011, I started as their first, um, their first veteran employee. Okay. Uh, at the University of Texas, Austin. And I, over the next few years, I built their veterans program. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. We had about 5,000 veterans on campus, plus about 2,500 uh, people that are attached to veterans, dependents. Okay. Uh, that were using their benefits and everything. And it was really, um, it every university at that time, 2011, 2012, 2013, was dealing with such an influx of military-associated students mm-hmm. that had benefits and the benefits were changing, and so the universities all were dealing with heavy, um, not crisis, but just, like, um, cultural shifts around how to process the benefits. Sure. And it was a great time for me because I had gotten my graduate degree. I, I liked adversity and chaos. That's what they had. Um, and I was able to work. I mean, I had a million interactions with veterans that were attempting to go to UT Austin, that were going to UT Austin, that were having financial difficulties or cultural difficulties of going back into school. And it was a real rewarding time for me. I eventually got promoted a few times, became their director of veteran services. And um, it was, uh, it really, I cut my teeth aggressively in the veteran services space. And I I got so much experience with, so, I became a belly button for 7,000 people. Oh, good. Belly button for services, right? So if they needed right. something, they'd come to me. And uh, it was merely because of where I was. Fact okay. and function of just being the guy that had the door that was open. Sure. And, but I, 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 I think back about 10,000 hours and these things we hear, and it's like, I got them all right there. Mm-hmm. I think the the busiest day I had was like 68 people. Like people were waiting at my parking spot when I showed up to talk to me about their issues. Um, I met, had a line of 15 people out the door when I got to my office. And then I just, I, I just wrote down everybody I met with that day just to, cause I was, I was in the middle of a fight. I wanted to see right. what I was doing. Absolutely. And it was, uh, so it really developed me to understand veteran needs at a high level. Yes, they were in education, but this was many people who were just attempting to go somewhere would come and talk to me. Right. Because I was the guy with the door open. And uh, it really helped me understand what's possible and, you know, understand the needs of veterans as they transition. Sure. Um, while I was working there, um, had a desire to get back to Louisiana, uh, wanted to get closer to family, that my wife's family and my family are both in Alabama. Um, wasn't ready to move back to Alabama. And so uh, we started looking at opportunities. And through a Marine Corps connection, I was um, I was uh, introduced to and then eventually hired by the deputy mayor of public safety in New Orleans uh, to be the um, to do a Homeland Security finance job. Oh, wow. Another okay. um, public admin uh, related job. So for a few years, I worked with uh, Orleans Parish, Plaquemines Parish, St. Bernard Parish and Jefferson Parish to run kind of their regional consortium of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness. Um funding and purchasing okay. and stuff um, basically as a, a plug and play administrator for this funding okay. and this program uh, got me a lot of experience with grant and federal, more federal money experience. Um, um, during that time I became, uh, I got involved with the new Orleans VFW uh, for a while. The new Orleans VFW was the second fastest growing VFW in the nation. I, I know a lot of people will think about a VFW and be like, it's just a smoky old place with guys who drink. No, uh, it, it's it's right. different in New Orleans. So we had an old building. Uh, we had a real desire to um, to renovate and build a new VFW, and it was uh, it was really led by young post nine eleven veterans, mm-hmm. Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, and uh, got involved. Uh, 
didn't choose to, but was put in leadership. Uh, and so I kind of matriculated through leadership while I was working with the city. And I, I started learning that there was a real gap in veteran services in the state of Louisiana. Um, you know, there was nobody doing veteran employment. There was nobody doing this. There was nobody doing that. And so I uh, reconnected with some of my peers in Texas, which is about 10 years ahead of everybody when it comes to veteran services, merely because okay. the amount of people that are returning to Texas after service and was like, hey, what? what are some options to get what you're doing? And the guy, he was uh, the executive director of Next Stop, which is a veteran employment nonprofit. I was like, we got nobody doing what you do here. Um, he was like, well, let's, let's put together a pitch deck and let's go see if we can find money. And he's like, we need about $100,000 to expand our services. And they were looking to expand. Uh, Next Stop was founded in Houston. It's a very powerful veteran service or veteran employment organization. And um, so in a few months, we found the money to expand and I was hired for my good deeds. And, I've been with Next Stop since 2000 and the end of 2017. Oh, wow. All right, so that brings us into Next Stop. Tell me, first of all, what is your mission statement yeah. at Next Stop? That's a great question. You know, Next Stop, our mission is to recruit, develop, and place post-9-11 E3 to E7 veterans. Um, why do we focus on that population? They're 80% of the people that get out of service each year. So they're the biggest population that's, that's exiting service. Um, they're also the people that do a majority, they're the gears that make the military work. Okay. And if you look at what the talent workforce needs are in America, it's those people they're looking for, the touch labor. Absolutely. Right? Uh, secondarily, um, uh, we work with that population because research says that they, they're the ones that need the most assistance. Okay. Uh, in kind of meeting um, their post-military career ability. So uh, what do we do? So we recruit them, right? So we try our best to get as far upstream with the individual as they get out of service. Uh, these are people that have spent anywhere from five to 10 years in service. Mm -hmm. um, and you are, you know, you know who they are. Yep. Um, and the two realities are, is that they don't know how to translate their experience and they don't understand civilian career infrastructure. Right. They don't understand what businesses do. They don't know what their name, they don't know the acronyms, et cetera. Absolutely. So it's either them as they're getting out or the people that are in their first few years of out um, of service um, research says that 61% of people that exit the service are um, underemployed for their first two years out of oh, wow. service. They get jobs, not careers, because they need to just replace the funding that they're losing. That's it, yeah. And so uh, we, we were really invested in those people. We know they have skills. We know they have the desirable things that employees need, employers need. And so we're trying to help to grab them and, and advance them. Uh, we develop them. Development could look like getting them a credential or explaining them what education is or we talked about this a little bit earlier. Hey, if you go in this career field, this person is going to hire you, then train you once you're hired. That's right. And so we're looking at them to advance themselves beyond just their skills. Now, if they've got a really good niche skill set, mm -hmm. like you're an electrician, let's just get them a job as an electrician. That's right. That's right. That's right. But if they've got, if they were a tank mechanic and you want to be a diesel mechanic, well, there's bridges there. That's right. Right. And then uh, last is place. So a big part of what we do is work with employers like Performance to try to help them meet their talent needs. And what, in a perfect world, we would take the individual veteran, we would refine them, and we would help them understand what they're selecting, and we would introduce them to one of our employers so they could be hired. Right. And so that's kind of our mission and, and what we're focused on, um, you know, the words, but also the meaning behind those I words. got you. Yeah. So where is Next Stop? So tell me where it was founded yeah. and where has it branched to now? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So we were founded in Houston in 2015, a, a big... Houston, number one city of returning veterans. That's right. Um, huge gap of um, trigger pullers and people getting out of the service, not finding the type of careers they're looking for. Uh, so some um, a former Marine uh, platoon leader 
and some energy executives came together and founded this organization, really just to focus on this population. Okay. Um, the guy's name is Donovan Campbell, who is kind of the brainchild of this organization. He wrote a book called Joker One about his experience as a um, as an infantry officer in the Marine Corps. And his his whole thing was like, these machine gunners I have are probably some of the best men I've met, and they can do anything. But they get out and on their on their resume it says they're machine gunners, right? And like an old company might not hire them because of that because they don't understand their complete abilities. Exactly. And so um, we really focused on energy to begin with, oil and gas. Um, and so between 2015 and 2017, they operated in Houston, and they they um, I think they placed a thousand veterans in that oh, time wow. frame. Uh, just real hyper, basically a nonprofit that acts like a recruitment firm for our partner organizations. Okay. Um, and then, uh, they started looking into expanding in 2017. That's, it alludes to the story that I told you where I started talking to the executive director Okay. and I helped, um, I helped find funding to expand them to Louisiana. We expanded in Louisiana because of similar, um, uh, career and industry fields as sure. they have in Houston, a lot of connectivity between them, just like performance is operating in both places. Right. Um, so it made sense. Uh, it also made sense that we could expand into a larger area because this that there's more veterans in the city of Houston than there is in the state of Louisiana. Oh wow. Right. And so it it, it gave us some ability to go out in rural areas and do some oh, yeah, different sure. things that were interesting at the time with federal funding and everything like that. And then since then we kind of operate throughout Louisiana, Mississippi, and the Gulf Coast, the Northwest Florida. We have an employee that works that li- lives in uh, and works in Eastern North Carolina with a large bases are out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and then we have uh, our executive directors in Washington D.C. and our development directors in Wisconsin. Uh, we we I think we work over across by forty bases nationally. Oh wow! Um, okay, and uh, we're we're kissing in with talent from here from other places to go work at those bases. Um, again, to recruit and also to bring the message of our employers as far upstream as we can. Um, and so that's what we look like. We're looking at other expansion territories okay, as we okay. go in the next years. Um, there's a few places in the Southeast that have, uh, aggressive talent signals that, uh, they just don't have enough people there to do the jobs that they have. Okay. Uh, two that come to mind are like West Tennessee and, um, North Alabama. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at opportunities to expand our services up there, uh, both to grow us geographically, but also to bring on new employees to kind of serve those communities. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. It seems like Next Stop's got a great direction. I, I know we have worked very hard with uh, Next Stop and with the goal of trying to put veterans to work, yep. right? I mean, yes, we are a an industrial construction company, right? But it's almost as if, you know, one of our main jobs, uh, not just servicing the, the client, but servicing our communities, yeah. our families, our, our veterans, our military you know, the, the whole transition period coming out of the military is is a struggle. I, it has been ever since the beginning of time, right. right? When you're going from a directive such as combat or whatever the case may be, and you're just dumped off, you know, on your family or you're on the street, whatever the case may be, you need someone to just, you know, figuratively take you up, you yeah. know, grab your hand, give you a good talking to and say, look, there is a future. You yeah. can't see it right now. Yeah. Let me help you, right? And I know Next Stop takes a, a, a big part of that burden away because you're you're identifying these companies and saying, look, these people are looking for veterans right. just like you. Give them that sense of security, that initiative, and that drive. And and I want to thank you for that because Lord knows uh, we've had that problem for yeah. many years. And, and Next Stop and Performance is actually doing something about it. 
No, it's, it's, you, you've stumbled onto something that the research actually shows is important. So the Call of Duty Foundation, the video game, yep. uh, they do research around veteran employment. That's the, 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 the way they've decided to go with their, uh, their giving and their research is just employment of veterans as the end oh, of wow. service. Yeah, so they do an annual survey, and that annual survey or annual report, it says that you are two times more likely to get the job that you want if somebody reviews your resume with you. Okay. Two times more likely. You're three times more likely to get the job that you want if someone coaches you through the process. So we're literally putting fine butts behind that data, yep. right? And so our, our um, case managers, so what does it look like for the veteran, right? So the veteran signs up for, uh, for us as an organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of our case managers reaches out and is basically their concierge throughout their career, ser- their career search. We like to say they're in the foxhole with them. They're like-minded individuals who have been through the process that can help them translate their experience sure. but also understand where their experience can plug in into, into the civilian industrial complex, right? Okay. What, what industry or what, um, what kind of career field. Um, they get eight hours on case management apiece uh, on average. If you want to participate more, then you, go ahead. But that's what you're going to get just through research of our participation mm-hmm. with people. Resume assistance, interview assistance, connection to mentorship, connection to people at companies like you. Sure. Um, and then, um, and then eventually placement. And so I think it's, it's, it's what we see ourselves, our mission is to bridge the gap and to be the strong, or our our vision is to be the strongest, um, link between military veteran talent and industry, Mm -hmm. right? And how do we do that? We help you understand who they are and how to access them while we also help refine them based on what the research says, don't make more successful and then hand them to employers. So it's a, um, you know, the sad reality is that the problems that we've you've kind of touched on, but the same individual today that was me as an aviation electrician sure. that gets off the hairy that walks out, they're going to get a week of transition training on how to write their resume, and then they're going to get sent back to wherever they go. And they, they're going to be on their own to go figure out where they can apply their trade, for lack of better terms. Okay. With no understanding of how to translate it, what they did in the military, right, and then no understanding where they can plug into and so efforts like this and relationships like this are very important because what it does is it just shortens that runway. Absolutely. And it, 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 it takes that 61% of underemployment and it drives it down. And, and that's what we're here for is to create that connection. But also, like you said, is to help people access this talent that they want to access so much. Absolutely. You know, giving people the knowledge and not just people, but, you know, or not just veterans, but people in general the knowledge and, and and to know that there's companies out there, especially next stop, we're focusing on you guys, what you're doing for the, those veterans. But if you, you know, I, I try to break everything down and what you're doing for the family, which is the, the husband or wife, yeah. their children, their grandparents, because, you know, you're affecting everyone in a family. If you put one person to work, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're providing, them with an option to go work with a company that's going to put a roof over their head that possibly could pay, you know, their doctor bills, whatever the case may be, you're, the incentive is there. And, and you guys have, you know, literally just taken it up and, and, and given direction and drive. So thank you for that. No, um, thank you. I, I think uh, that pretty much covers it. I, I, again, I want to thank you for what, what you do with Next Stop, what Next Stop does for performance. And, and we're going to continue to build this relationship uh, for sure, and with the ultimate goal to put as many veterans as we possibly can to work. Not necessarily just with performance, but even if there's veterans out there who are looking for work and needing to go to work, right? We've got relationships with other construction companies as well as you do, and with that ultimate goal to put these individuals to work. 
So again, I want to thank you. Is there any closing statements you'd like to no, make? No, I would. I would like to, to highlight performance as a leader in this space. Uh, I want to thank the, the organization for its continued investment and this focus on this population. I, I think you know um, everybody has a talent problem right yeah. now post COVID. I think uh, we need leaders in in the space to show mm-hmm. people how to solve talent program. Are there pro- talent problems with either programming or investment? Right. And um, and performance contractors has been a stalwart in this space and investing dollars and um, and looking at opportunities and collaboration to help this population. So uh, we couldn't do the work that we do without organizations like performance. And I think it's um, it's not only refreshing to see the investment mm-hmm. that um, that performance has made in this both through, you know, through effort and through energy, but also it's um, it's challenging. Sure. It's challenging to work with organizations like yours that wants to do more and more and more, and it, it keeps us on our toes, and it helps us evolve the whole ecosystem. Right. So uh, things like this, getting the word out through a podcast, your efforts to kind of challenge us, be like, hey, we need these kind of bodies now. and this time sure. I think uh, continue to do that, and I hope that other companies learn from your efforts because uh, this is a population worth investing in. Um, you know, one of the realities that we see uh, all across Louisiana and the Southeast is people tell us there's three problems with people they try to hire these mm-hmm. days. One, they can't show up to work on time. Two, they don't know how to act in a workplace. Right. And three, they can't pass a drug test. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, right. With this population, you get all those uh, opposites. So you can pass a drug test because yep. it's part of the community and culture. That's right. And um, you know how to operate in the workspace. Hell, you've got training on it. Yeah. And then last is it, uh, you know how to show up to work on time. Yeah. As you alluded to it earlier, if we don't, we get anxiety. Exactly. That's how we were right. trained. But no, it's, uh, it's, it's been an awesome time talking to you about this. And I just, I can't say it enough how great performance has been in here. And I'm just excited to continue working with y'all and uh, keep impacting this community. Awesome. Well, then, I, I, again, I want to thank you for coming. And I want to thank you for what you do for Next Stop. And I want to thank you for what you're doing for performance as well. And not just performance, but the entire community, the states that you guys are working in, and, you know, our country. All right. right? So thank you very much. And um, I'm going to try to have some stuff posted on here about Next Stop. Maybe you can see it uh, whenever you're viewing it. Um, and don't forget, we're, we're not doing this for any glory to performance or Next Stop. We're doing this for the individual's who are actually tuning in, right? The, the men and the women, the children, the parents, the grandparents who care to know more. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to provide that information. So make sure you like, make sure you subscribe, and we'd love to read and, and check things out in the comments. So this is Mike Favre signing off.